When you decide that you have enough, the most important pivot is to go from returns to risk mitigation. What's going to knock you off is not low returns. What's going to knock you off is risk. I'm willing to take slightly lower returns for better risk mitigation. And to me, that's exactly what real estate was. This is the Passive Wealth Strategies podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we're talking about the process and the psychology required to become a financially independent and retired early high paid professional. Today, our guest is Doc G. Doc was a high paid physician. He worked long hours and he made a lot of money. Then one day he realized he didn't want to be a physician anymore. Really, it wasn't one day. It was a process. But he tells us about an event with that one day, one book that he read that completely changed his mind. And today we're going through all of those steps that he took to put himself in a financial position where he was able to retire when he wanted, but also the psychology that he had to have to be able to retire early like that. It sounds like from the outside, you might think, oh, come on, you can you just go retire. What are you doing? But that's not really what it's like on the inside. And today we're learning what it takes to be a high paid professional and retire early. It's not as easy as it sounds, although it does. It certainly does not sound easy. I learned a lot in this one. We learn a lot about his process and the inside scoop on what it takes to retire early as a high-paid professional. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Love talking about these topics and really learning the inside scoop, the psychology of success. And that's what we're getting into today. Without any further ado, here we go with Doc G. Doc G, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk with you. You, We're going to talk about building streams of passive income and leaving your day job. But those out there who don't know you and don't know your story. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So I am classically trained as a doctor. It was the thing I thought I most wanted to do in the world. My father was a physician. He died when I was eight years old. And that stuck with me, this idea that I was going to jump right into his shoes. And that's exactly what I did. I went to high school and college. I was very focused wasn't thinking about money or making a living or anything. To me, it was completely the passion. And I did what a lot of, unfortunately, doctors do nowadays. I jumped into the education and somewhere around residency, the end of my training, I realized that while I loved the idea of what the practice of medicine was, when you were there in the midst of it, taking care of people, it was difficult. It was emotionally painful. It was physically fatiguing. The system had even changed in the short period of time that I was in training that it became much more about documenting and typing into a computer and less and less about patient care. And I had a few really bad traumatic experiences during residency too, where bad things happened, where people died, and that stuff stuck with me. So as I became a physician and started practicing, and you know, most doctors, I started practicing when I was 29. So that's how long it took me to get through medical school and residency. By the time I started practicing, I was pretty tired. And if you can think about your life, right? So you're 29, you're making more money than you ever made. You're really at the beginning of your career, at least when it comes to income generation. 
And already in me was this kernel of doubt that it's not exactly what I thought it would be. It's incredibly exhausting. And can I really do this for the next 30 years? And that really changed the way I looked at my career. I started building up my income, building up my revenue streams, looking at side hustles and passive income, along with building up how much I could make as a physician. Because I knew at some point that I was going to be exhausted and tired out and want to start pulling away. And over the next decade, as I built up more income, I built up more both passive and active income and saved and invested and got more and more tired of practicing medicine, I had this magical moment where I discovered a book that talked about financial independence. And within a few hours of reading it, I realized that I had enough money. Wow. And it what changed my that? life. It was The White Coat Investor by Jim Dolly. So Jim Dolly runs a website called The White Coat Investor. It's mostly for physicians, but for generally high income, high net worth individuals. And I was lucky. I grew up in a family where my parents had money. They were relatively frugal. They had all sorts of passive income streams. They had rental properties. So they modeled for me this beautiful financial behavior. But what they didn't do is they didn't really give me the vocabulary to understand it. So this book came into my hands right at that time where I knew I wanted to make a change and I had really developed these great financial habits and yet didn't know how to pull the trigger and take what I had built and turn that into a good life. So I had done all the hard work of building what I needed, but I had no idea how to then take all that power, all that fuel, all that energy I had created and allow it to propel me to that next level of life where maybe I could start letting go of the things I didn't like. Interesting. So it sounds like it's more, it's, it's not process, it's more psychological. If it, the, the lesson you got out of that book, I'm trying to... I think it did a few things. So for one, it gave me the basic math. So when I got to that point where I was getting burned out in medicine, I actually went to my accountant and I told, told my accountant, I'm saying, you know, maybe I want to pull back from medicine. Maybe I even want to do something crazy like retire early. How much money do I need? My accountant kind of said, looked at me and said, $10 million. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't have $10 million. So I went to my financial advisor because I had a financial advisor at the time, a person who I really trusted. And he did a bunch of Monte Carlo scenarios and really put my money, you know, through all his calculations. And he said, well, you're not quite there yet. But the inputs were all wrong. Like he asked me, well, how much do you want to spend a year? And I had never budgeted my whole life. Like pretty much we always saved a lot of money. And because we knew we were saving a lot of money, we never bothered budgeting. I never kept track of how much I spent every month. I just knew that I was always putting away a lot more than I was spending. So my financial advisor, when he's doing these calculations, he says, well, how much do you want to spend a year? And I said, oh, you know, $250,000, $300,000 a year. I mean, I had no idea. I had no idea what I was even spending. And then I had really a you know, seven-figure real estate portfolio at that point. And he didn't even want to include that in the calculations of how much money I had with the passive income, et cetera. So as you can tell, you know, he gave me calculations, but they weren't realistic. But I didn't know enough at that point. I didn't understand the math enough 
to challenge either my accountant or my financial advisor, but I was able to figure it out so quickly when I got a book that just laid it out. What is financial independence? What is a, a rough you know, thumbnail of what you need to live off of? So we talk about the safe withdrawal rate of 4%. We talk about the 25 times rule. If you know what those things are, they're ways of guesstimating how much money you need saved up to give yourself an annual salary based on your savings and investments. Those rules are not perfect. In fact, I would never tell anyone to take those rules and follow them strictly to the line, but they're great ways for you to start thinking about what your financial needs actually are. And that's what the book really did for me. Believe it or not, the second part, which you asked about more the emotional energy to change took me years after reading that book to actually extract myself out of medicine. And that had more to do with that identity I had built around myself as a physician. Not only that, but the identity I built around myself as a high income earner. So when I started pulling back from medicine, I was making almost seven figures a year. When you put all my investments, my side hustles, my real estate, when you put it all together, and my wife was working at the time too. So when you put all that together, we had this really huge income. It was kind of hard to walk away from that identity as the high income earner and as the physician, things I had really held tightly to my chest for decades. So how do you, I mean, how do you make that first step of stepping away from it? Was it just being aware that, okay, I'm going to need to change my identity eventually. And then over a few years, it sinks in and you just say, all right, I'm going to take off. Or I don't know, is it gradually making steps out and, and weaning yourself off of working and slowly lowering that income level? Well, the first thing I did was have a panic attack. And it, <laughs> it's really kind of strange, right? Because I had reached that major goal that should have made me jubilant, but instead I felt incredible anxiety and depression probably for months trying to grapple with, well, if I don't have to be a physician anymore, if I can walk away tomorrow, who am I then? Because whether I had meant to or not, I had built this sense of identity so tightly connected to those things. Eventually, I started pulling back on those things I didn't like. So there are many things about being a physician I didn't like. I was in a private practice at that time, and I was actually seeing patients in their own homes. I was doing something called a concierge practice. So instead of billing insurance, I was billing patients a yearly annual fee for things not covered by insurance. It's called the concierge fee. So the first thing I realized is that was stressful. I was getting phone calls in the middle of the night to go visit people at all times of day and night. I was really the personal servant to these patients who are part of my practice. So the first thing I did was got rid of the concierge practice. That affected my bottom line, but not hugely because I was still seeing patients in the nursing home. I was still a medical director of some nursing homes. I was doing hospice work. So I had a practice where I did many different things. Then I started realizing that the nursing homework was incredibly exhausting and draining. So the next thing I did was I just started cutting back on the nursing homes until I didn't have any left. And then I was being a consultant for a hospice company, which was work I really, really enjoyed. But I even started limiting that. So I decided that I wouldn't do any weekends. I wouldn't do any night calls. Pretty much, I even stopped seeing patients. And mostly what I was doing was the part that administratively, believe it or not, I liked. So over years, I kept taking away things I didn't like about my job and leaving those things I liked. 
because I still was somewhat tied up in that identity. And there were still things I really felt good about. Being a physician, you have this power to hopefully positively affect the world. And I wasn't ready to give that up 100%. But I did know there were things that were drawing away from my life that were eating up my time. And I had realized I didn't need the money anymore. So why was I letting these things take my time? While I was doing that, I also became very intentional about how I generated income and where my money came from because I have and had investments. And I'm a young guy, or I like to think of myself as young. I just turned 47, but I'm certainly not retirement age at 65. Mm -hmm. So I knew that as I was pulling back from work and as I was generating less income, I didn't want to have to start breaking into my investments or liquidating my real estate unless I totally had to. So as I'm drawing down on the work strategy, I'm starting to shore up my investments. I'm a big index investor. So I started thinking about, well, how much money am I generating in dividends, right? Because I don't want to cash out those stocks if I have the choice. So, all right, I'm making one third or one fourth of what I need through the year to spend through dividends. Okay, well, how am I doing with real estate? Well, I built up to four or five properties. Wow, I can probably pay half of my yearly needs through income generation from the rentals. How much am I making from that little bit of work that I like to keep doing? Okay, that's covering another half of what I need for the year. So what I was able to do is get rid of the things I didn't like, but also become very intentional about where my cash flow was coming from because I don't want to live moment to moment. I don't want to have to be frugal to have enough to make it each month. I would like to continue my level of living that I had while I was, you know, while I was making big amounts of money or even better. So my thought process was, how do I make sure that this money machine keeps on spitting out bills regardless of what I'm doing? Because Ultimately, what I really want is time. And if I want to have as much time as possible, I have to stop doing the things I don't like and do more of the things I do like. And some of those do take money. So you've also you know, built this online business and you're building up these passive streams of income through the internet. And I, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how you even mentally found the energy or you know, let alone the time. I mean, it sounds like when you were practicing, I mean, 100 hours a week of work. I mean, how did you not just get completely burned out and just say, I'm just going to keep doing this because this is what I know? Well, it was one of those other signs early on in my career that made me realize that being a physician was not the end all be all. I'll give you a perfect example. When I was in medical school, I went to Northwestern in Chicago and Northwestern has an amazing business school. It's the Kellogg School of Business. And there was this opportunity to get an MD, MBA, right? So mm -hmm. I was going to do four years of medical school. If I did one more year, I could also get an MBA. And my wife looked at me and she said, you need to do that. And I thought she was crazy. I was like, I want to be a doctor. Why would I ever go to business school? And so I didn't. Mm. And looking back as time went on, Throughout my career, I kept on getting involved in businesses. I started a business actually where I sold artwork because there was something at my job. It wasn't fulfilling my passions or needs. I got involved with real estate and became a landlord. I started writing online and wrote for blogs and 
other periodicals, it became clear to me that no matter how busy and tired I was from work, it wasn't fulfilling my needs. And there were these other interests that kept poking out no matter how hard or how tired I got. So I kept on getting involved in businesses because they interested me. We kept on buying properties, especially when the real estate market crashed and everything was in foreclosure because we had other interests. And I started writing and blogging and doing things like podcasting because I had this need to communicate that wasn't fulfilled by being a physician. So I was tired a lot, but my heart was telling me there were other things I was meant to do in the world. So it was another one of those big signs to me that, that just being a physician was never going to be my full path. Wow, that is fascinating. So yeah, I'd be remiss if we didn't dig into your real estate strategy. You've mentioned it a few times and, and the things that you're doing and the, how you kind of built up the portfolio. Can you tell us more about the properties that you own, what you look for, and like what your criteria were, especially being an exceptionally busy professional, at least at the time when you were buying these, like how did you really sort that out, figure out what you wanted to invest in? In some sense, we are almost accidental landlords, but looking back, it shouldn't have been surprising because my parents owned over 10 properties at one time when I was a kid, and my wife's parents owned a number of buildings with multiple doors. So it was almost in our DNA to be landlords. But our first property, we were living or we're living where we currently are in a suburb of Chicago. And we're thinking it would be really nice to have a place to go stay in the city on the weekends with the kids. We love to hang out on Michigan Avenue and kind of the really cool parts of the city. And the real estate market was on a downturn. And so my wife and I bought a condo right in the middle of the city thinking, we're going to go stay there with the kids, enjoy the weekends, enjoy the restaurants, enjoy all there is to the city, and then hang out at home during the week. And so we bought a condo. And at that time, we had some cash around. So we bought it completely in cash, no mortgage, nothing. And we renovated it. And we used it for about six months. And after about six months, you know, the kids were too young. They were getting in fights. They weren't sleeping in their bunk beds. Everything was going wrong. And we weren't enjoying it nearly as much as we thought we would. And our realtor who had helped us buy it said, hey, I, I have a friend who's getting divorced and he'd love a condo in the area. Do you want to just rent it out to him? And we were like, okay. So we rented it out to him and we were making money, right? Even this one, which was not a great investment, the HOAs were like $1,000 a month, right? Wow. So this is not a great investment. On the other hand, it was in such a great part of Chicago, we were still making hundreds of dollars a month on him renting it. Wow. So we did that for a year or two, and then the real estate market really just died. And so we started looking at foreclosures. We knew how to make a condo work. And so we found a foreclosure that was a condo. It was right by DePaul University, so this great student area. The condo was beaten up, but we had done work on condos before, so that didn't scare us. We went to the bank and lowballed them and they laughed at us and then two weeks later sold it to us for that price. <laughs> and we spent literally $5,000 renovating this place, so not a lot, nah. and rented it out within a week or two. And so as time went on, we got more adventurous and usually when we looked for property, it was like, well, how could we enjoy this? So we live right by Lake Michigan in Evanston, which is an incredibly expensive suburb. You're not going to buy lakefront property here unless you have multi-millions to spend. 
but we're pretty close to Wisconsin. And my wife started looking on MLS and found lakefront property, Lake Michigan property in foreclosure in Wisconsin, an hour away from our house. So we went, checked this place out. It wasn't selling. The previous owner was harassing people, leaving manifestos in the house and just scaring people. So we bought that place, renovated it. By the time we renovated, we thought we were going to use it and Airbnb it. By the time we finished renovating it, we were exhausted. We didn't even want to like buy all the furniture. So we just rented it out and we rented it out for three or four years. The people decided to leave. We started to put it on the market. We didn't even bother with a realtor. We staged the place. We started to put it on the market. One of the neighbors walked over and said, we're looking for a bigger house. We pretty much sold it to our neighbor with just a lawyer, right? So we had about $1,000 lawyer fees. And we had bought the place for $400,000. We had put $50,000 in. We sold it for $700 and something three years later. Nice. And so we took all that money and did a 1031 exchange and bought two more condos in the city close to us, which landed us with four condos. We own them all outright. And they are revenue generating. They provide cash flow. Now, you could look at us at this model and say, well, you're not leveraged at all. A lot of your money is tied up in these condos. You know, why are you doing this? A lot of people said, wow, you could totally just leverage those up and your rate of return would be so much higher. And Chicago, you have to remember, Chicago is a little bit of a tight market. A lot of properties, it's hard to find properties that follow the 1% rule. So you could look at this and say, wow, you're horrible investors, but you have to look at the role real estate plays in my portfolio. So one is I'm a busy professional who can generate a lot of money by being a physician, even if I only do it a few hours a week. So I have a very ready income stream. The other is my wife and I both have fairly large 401ks as well as a fairly large taxable brokerage account. So we are creating revenue through that, just through dividends, et cetera. So when it came to real estate, I didn't really feel like I needed to be leveraged. For me, it was much more of a diversification play. If the stock market goes to crap, are you going to have other revenue sources that cover for it so that you don't have to sell that stock so that you can hold on to it for long term? And so for me, that was the role that real estate played. And I accepted a little bit lower returns for easy cash flow and for stronger diversification in my portfolio. That's great. I mean, I think folks from time to time focus too much on trying to maximize that return, at least on paper, and maybe don't consider the overall risk in their strategy. Not that leverage is necessarily a big risk. It's not, but it is a risk. It's there. And if you can own outright, get a return you're happy with, and correspondingly keep your risk fairly low, then that's great. I mean, there's no problem with that at all. Let me tell you a secret that it took me a while to learn. When you have enough, we like to call it financial independence, but when you decide that you have enough, the most important pivot is to go from returns to risk mitigation. Because you really don't need high returns anymore when you have enough. You need enough returns to maintain. But what's going to knock you off in the future when you've hit that enough and you're starting to scale back? What's going to knock you off is not low returns. What's going to knock you off is risk. What's going to happen that you didn't foresee? And so 
I'm willing to take slightly lower returns for better risk mitigation. And to me, that's exactly what real estate was, is it was a way to mitigate my risk of the stock market, mitigate my risk of my career. Maybe I get burned out. Maybe I get PTSD. Maybe I can't be a doctor anymore. Maybe I get disabled. Of course, there's other forms of risk mitigation for that, like disability insurance. But the point being is that if you have multiple revenue sources and you can find ways to uncorrelate them, make sure that they don't depend on each other, it's okay not to have the highest returns. Wow. I love that. That is such a great insight. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Doc, I've got three questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So I have the cheesy answer and then probably the more satisfying answer. Let's go with the more satisfying answer is the house we bought in Wisconsin. It, you know, we owned it for a few years. We fixed it up. It returned 80 to 90%. It was a really, really good investment. And it allowed us to take that cash and put it into other cash flowing real estate properties. So that's the non-cheesy answer. The cheesy answer is, is my marriage, right? So what do you invest in that actually will give you long-term success is I believe I married the right person. And that has led more to my success as a person, both financially and emotionally. And I think you have to remember that we invest in a lot of things, not just what we traditionally think of as investments, but our friends, our family, those kind of things are important. Nice. I love that. We had your best investment, best investments. Now we go to the worst investment or investments. What is the worst investment you ever made? Oh, certainly when I was young, my brother decided to work for a insurance company for a while. And he sold me a horrible whole life insurance policy, which I cashed out like a year or two or probably three or four years after we bought it. And it was a, it was a complete wash. It, it was a big waste of money. And it was a, an incredibly bad investment. Interesting. I, that is not really a subject that I know much about. I have read about it. But what makes it the worst investment for you? So it was just inappropriate. The returns were low. It would tie up my money. I was young. I didn't even really need any kind of insurance at all for the insurance portion because I was not married and didn't have kids at the point. I would have done much better just taking my money and putting it in an index fund and just leaving it be. Whole life insurance probably has a role for a small number of people, especially for the high income, high net worth affluent people. For someone just starting in their career and young, it's probably not the best move. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Thank you for that. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? So what I really learned is that you can't pay other people to think for you. You pay them to advise you. And I really learned this with my financial advisors in the past. I always gave myself the excuse that you know, I'm a doctor, I don't have time for this. So I want to take all this income I'm generating, give it to someone else and let them deal with it. And I gave myself a complete pass. So what happened is my money was invested in things I completely didn't understand. I couldn't speak fluently about what my money was doing or why. And it was a big mistake. So again, I'm not saying you shouldn't ask for help. There are advisors in our life who are going to help us, whether they be doctors, lawyers, or accountants, but it behooves you 
to do your due diligence and understand what you're talking about. You need to understand all your investments, the thought process behind them, and what they're going to do for you. That doesn't mean you need to know as much as your advisor knows about them, but you've got to know enough to protect yourself. And I can tell you multiple times in my life, I pushed off that responsibility because I thought I was too busy or that it was too complicated. And the truth of the matter is, no one is going to watch as closely as you do, so you better understand. Wow. That is fantastic and really ties up our conversation very well. If folks want to learn more about you, if they want to get in touch, where can they find you? So the best place to find me is I have a podcast called the Earn and Invest podcast. You can find us at earnandinvest.com. This is where we talk about financial issues and take it to the next level. So we don't talk about how you become financially independent. We don't talk about how you become wealthy. We talk more about what you do then with your life. What does it mean? Where does that wealth get you? On Mondays, we do panel episodes. On Thursdays, I do individual interviews. You can also find me on Facebook. We have a Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. There are about 15, 1,700 people in that group. It is very lively. We discuss what's going on in the financial news, sometimes in the political news, although I try to not let it get too political. <laughs> yeah, you have to. And I am on Instagram, Twitter, it's earnandinvest.com. Earn and invest was taken, so that's an A-N. Uh, you can find me in any of those places. Take a listen to the podcast. As you do, I put a lot of thought and heart into making really good episodes and trying to engage you to, so that you can find something worthwhile and interesting in it. Nice. I love that. And there's so many great lessons in our conversation today. And I'm sure your your purpose is very necessary for those who find themselves in that position. It sounds, it's, it's an area that not a lot of people, I don't know if anybody else is really talking about. So that's fantastic that you're bringing that content to folks that are in that situation. Thanks once again for all the lessons today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Very much appreciated. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.